what's working on purpose anyway? Each week we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest potential. Business can be such a force for good in the world, elevating humanity. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration to help usher in this world we all want, working on purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Hi there. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, which is home base for me. If you don't know me yet, I'm a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose, organizational logotherapist, inspirational speaker, social scientist, and author. You can learn more about me and how we can work together at elisecortez.com or gusto-now.com. Let me thank, let me thank my part partner and sponsor, Work Proud. We are a perfect collaboration. Everybody wants to know they matter and that the work they do is meaningful and appreciated. Work Proud is a mobile platform built to encourage employees to share stories and recognize each other's contribution. Work Proud empowers HR and business leaders to help create company cultures where all employees are inspired to feel proud of their work and proud of their company. Learn more at workproud.com. With us today is Lars Peter Niesen, who has worked in the humanitarian sector for more than 20 years and lived and worked for extended periods of time in Latin America, Africa, and South Asia. He is the director of ACAPS, an organization he co-founded in 2009, and also serves as the interim director for H2H Networks. He teaches disaster management at the University of Copenhagen and hosts the weekly podcast, True Humanitarian. We'll be talking about his dedicated work to the humanitarian sector and his particular approach in doing so. He joins today from Denmark. Normally he's in, in Geneva, Switzerland, but there it's midnight for him and 5 p.m. for me in Dallas. Lars Peter, welcome to Working on Purpose and staying up for us. Thank you very much. It's so great to have you. In fact, um, viewers who are watching this can look right behind him and see the clock and know that we are not kidding about that. There it is, just a smidge after midnight. And you still look marvelous. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I didn't look this good at five o'clock in the afternoon, but I'm glad to see you. <laughs> Absolutely. And let me first thank our, our, our mutual friend who brought you to me, Paul Skinner, who wrote the book Collaborative Advantage. He is the one that brought me to you. So thank you, Paul, for uniting us. It's great minds here. So, Lars Peter, you are up to a lot, my dear. You Here you are. Uh, you've, you're at ACAPS and H2H Network. So I want to help first our viewers and, and listeners to understand what each of those organizations do. So what does ACAPS do and what's your role there? Yeah, so... ACAPS, in a sense, helps shape the humanitarian narrative. When we see when we see disasters across the world, we we don't think of them as stories, but actually they are. The way we think about crisis is it's a story we tell ourselves, and and some of the choices we make in terms of do we decide to focus on Botswana or Ukraine or Bangladesh really determines how we then respond to those crises. So what we do is essentially try to give as much evidence as we can on on how big and how bad are crises across the world in order for decision makers to make the right choices. So we have scarce resources, we don't have enough money to help everybody. Where do you actually spend your money? That That's the decisions we're trying to inform. Mm. 
I really appreciate you how you brought us right into stories. The narrative is story. You're so right. That's so interesting. I don't know that I really considered it from the angle before, so I love it already. But then um, what about H2H Network? What do, what do they do? 60-some agencies, I believe. So if you look at, at uh, my career, for example, the first 20 years was basically a traditional sort of humanitarian career with the International Committee of the Red Cross, with different NGOs, with the UN. But then uh, some years ago, I, I started working with ACAPS, which is fundamentally different from those organizations because we don't, we don't hand out blankets. We provide data, we enable response. We are in a sense, B2B. Mm-hmm. So we're not, you know, so H2H is essentially B2B for the humanitarian sector. It means humanitarian to humanitarian. And it's a group of some 60 organizations who in different ways, either by providing standards, training, uh, analysis, uh, data, um, advice on how to use new tech, uh, all sorts of things, um, enable better humanitarian responses mm-hmm. to make sure we get more, for, more bang for the buck, if you want. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, beautiful. Okay, so then let's sketch back. So here you are today, you're working within these two organizations. I want to take us back to when this all maybe started to begin or began to brew. And you said somewhere, I think it was on one of your one of the podcasts that I listened to, but you said that your your long and early career working in this and with human concerns actually began with your first mission at age 19 when you went to El Salvador to understand faith and conflict. Let us in. What happened? How did you get the experience? Why did you go? What was going on? Through, through some personal contacts, I, I got in touch with a very um, socially conscious church in El Salvador, and, and I wanted to to understand what the church was in a... Denmark is a very quiet place, and the church plays a very quiet role, if you want. We have a, a very elaborate welfare state that takes care of a lot of things, so the church basically preaches the gospel. But if you go to a country like El Salvador, doing a... a civil war like the one we had back then, then the church is challenged in different ways. I wanted to understand what that was like, what faith was in a civil war, basically, or in in, in a much more active role for the church, a much more challenged context. And I have to pull that back further, Lars Peter, in that I, I wonder to what extent, I know your father studied uh, theology, it, it, did that at all inform your choice to, to look at faith? Absolutely, absolutely. There's no doubt that uh, I got that from um, from home, uh, and and seeing uh, seeing my dad, who, who's very who's very active, sort of internationally, also in the church work, um, was an inspiration for me to to also get involved and understand what my role should be. Mm-hmm. I really admire that, Lars Peter, and I'm just, if we just pause for just a second and we let our listeners and our viewers let this sink in and and get that you were 19 years old and you have a pretty informed, guided choice here in terms of how you wanted to reach into the world, that seems pretty astounding to me. Ah, well, you're speaking to a 50-some-year-old man by now who probably uh, rationalizes his life. I mean... It didn't feel like a choice. I just had a strong urge to figure this out and and, and place myself in that situation to see what would happen. And it seemed right, but I don't think I had a grand plan. But I had I had I had a lot of I had itchy feet. I think is is fair to say. 
Okay. All right. Now that's even more interesting to me then. So I, a couple weeks ago, I had Ken Banks on the show. I don't know if you've had a chance to talk to, to Ken Banks, um, amazing human being. Um, he is, he, he's done all kinds of things to em, empower uh, non-governmental agencies across the world through technology as well. But he talks about about 20 years of what I call wildlife scratching. He, he, in his case, he was reaching for a purpose. So what I hear you saying, which I really want to call out if, it's, if, it, if I'm getting this right, is that there was this internal, what I call an internal divining rod, right, that was pulling you to something and you had the good sense to listen to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And then I think once I got involved, that really spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I think um, it it never seemed like a choice. It never. It was just something that I really liked doing, that I seemed to be quite good at, and and that made a tremendous amount of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a lot of listeners who listen in regularly to the show would like to be able to find that internal light that you got, that internal guide that you got, and are grasping for it, so that you that you had it, you it registered for you at nineteen is just I don't want to overplay it, but it's just it's really remarkable to me. Yeah, I I don't know that that's how it was, that that that's that's how it was, and and. Uh, but I, I think it's what what always has been important for me is that that when you when you when, when you're in this space of, of trying to be driven by something a purpose whatever I mean for me the three M's always uh, the I always thought of myself as a healthy mix between a, a missionary a mercenary and a misfit in the I sense love that. that. <laughs> In the sense that I really do believe in what I'm doing, and I am driven by that, and that's that's obviously the the missionary, right? But the mercenary part is I I really enjoy it. I get a tremendous amount out of it. I'm I'm remunerated in so many ways for 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 working, and and I feel so privileged to be able to do this. And then thirdly, I probably have two itchy feet to work in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and then any sort of hierarchy or whatever, wherever I might end up in, in I, I couldn't. Yeah. I'd be fired within two weeks. And so I think for me, recognizing those three sides of it, what I believe in, what I get out of it, and my need to press the self-destruct button to a certain extent is probably what, what drives it. Okay, well, that gets me to my next question. And by the way, I already love this yummy conversation. Thank <laughs> you for letting us come right into to your cave, if you will. So one of the things that you said to me, either I think it was on our preliminary phone conversation, but you told me that you discovered early in your working life that you were quite good at working in messes. Uh, quite an, another great thing to discover early in your life. And so first, I want to understand how did you discover that particular talent? And then, of course, I need to know how to use it today. Well, I mean, I went to El Salvador to sort of work with a church and volunteer, and I ended up in the middle of a war zone, a very active one. And so that was a profound loss of control, you know, and I think I think experiencing that profound loss of control at a very early age and a very formative part of my life, I think, uh, shapes you. And, and, and certainly there are a lot of things you don't take for granted. And if you then draw that experience to what I'm doing today, what basically what I do today is trying to figure out um, if you take, for example, the, the pandemic we're experiencing right now, where should we focus? What's most important? 
Is it Peru? Is it the Rohingya in Bangladesh? Is it the states in the US uh, with low vaccination rates? Is it Botswana? Is it Zimbabwe? Is it the countries with high HIV uh, prevalence? Where should we look? And so that sort of level of ambiguity that we're dealing with because of this pandemic, for me, there's a very, very there's a straight line from from that very lost 19-year-old in El Salvador, and then uh, building on that experience to to figure out how to deal with such a level of ambiguity as we see today. Hmm. Hmm. Yes. And what I've been what I been becoming present to about you as I studied you and, and listened to your True Humanitarian podcast, um, a couple of, of for, uh, visions of that, um, is that you are, y- y- you like a big playing field, right? You're very comfortable in vastness. Ah, I guess, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that That's an interesting way of looking at it. I, I think that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean by that, actually? I, maybe I could ask. Well, um, the world is a big place. Let's start with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've been gallivanting across the world and living and, and immersing yourself in these various cultures across the world. And um, you, the way, it seems to me the way that your mind works is that, you know, here you are, you're, you're trying to apply uh, an, a, pro, a systematic approach to understand data and how, which inform decisions, which inform actions. Um, and that's just, there's, that's very chewy. Now, I do know you studied political science in the 1990s, and I want to hear about that. So I think you, your mind already gravitates toward complexity, right? Mm-hmm. And nuance. But uh, this is definitely, this. I would definitely say the work that you do is messy. Yes. Yes. I, I think that that's right. I think uh, extreme levels of ambiguity, black swans, uh, messiness, uh, however you want to deal with the complexity, I think is a good way of describing it. That, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then now that we sort of surface this idea, I know you studied political science, how has that study informed your approach to humanitarian work? Or even maybe your interest in, in pursuing humanitarian work? So I think, I think the... Um, I think it's around um, the way I, at least I was taught in political science was it was okay to have an, uh, an opinion once you entered this study and it was okay to have an opinion once you left. But if it wasn't shaken up to do while you were studying, then you were doing something wrong. So we were really forced to argue all cases and, and, and take all sides and and really look at the data and, 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 and argue the case. And I think Really, what you need if you work in messes is two things. You need some fairly clear uh, guiding principles, and then you need to really look at data and see how that applies and 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 combine the two. Right. So, if if you're a humanitarian, you would want to know who are the most vulnerable. Where do I focus? Where do, where do I put my scarce resources? And you want that to be data driven, not by whatever. So. I can give you an example. When, when the pandemic first struck, I spent four years in Zimbabwe. It's a country I love a lot and, and I care a lot about and that's very vulnerable and it has a, a very high prevalence of HIV. And so the first thought that entered my mind was, oh my God, what's going to happen in Zimbabwe? You know, we, it's such a vulnerable country. We have a whole, a whole bunch of people who are HIV positive. Is this going to be a, a disaster? And And for a while it was like, 
Hmm, apparently not. But then suddenly now it comes. Right now it seems that that there is a much higher level of infection and people are really beginning to die. And so, for me, that's a good example of how my preconceived idea and knowledge of Zimbabwe and love for Zimbabwe drove me to think and focus on that. But really, it was a couple of countries in Latin America that got the the that was hard hit in the beginning. Then it changed later, right? And so, if you want to maneuver in messes. You, you on one side, have to have some principles. For example, look at the most vulnerable, uh, make sure you, you, you focus on them. And then secondly, you really have to, to have a very strong methodological and data-driven approach, which I think I got from my studies. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And great way to take us into our very first break. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We run the air with Lars Peter Niesen, who's the director of ACAPS, an organization he co-founded in 2009 that is directed to see the crisis change the outcome. We've been talking a bit about how he got into the space and how he navigates it. After the break, we're going to hear more about ACAPS and what it does. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. As I've watched the pandemic continue on, we look for ways to help companies support the employees handle their anxiety, stress, depression, and feeling disconnected while also helping to lift and inspire them with ongoing professional development. So we now offer a well-being webinar learning series called Grab Your Gusto, Vital Wellbeing from the Inside Out. You can learn more about it at EliseCortez.com or shoot me an email to Elise at EliseCortez.com. If you're just joining the program, my guest today is Lars Peter Niesen, director of ACAPS, an organization he co-founded in 2009. He also serves as the interim director of H2H Network, which comprised 60 highly innovative humanitarian agencies, creating an enabling environment for humanitarian action through service delivery. He joins us today from Denmark, where he's on vacation. Normally, he's in Geneva, Switzerland. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. Okay, so I, I do want to get into, and you speak, it's so interesting how uh, humble you are about this, Lars Peter. You talk about working with ACAPS, but yet you co-founded it. You don't just work with it, you created this beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand it's to help humanitarians with assessments and see the crisis. So where did this organization come from and really what are you up to today? Help us really get behind or under the hood, if you will. So it, it's... Um... It's been quite a journey for me, actually, to, to work with ACAPS. I, I spent the first part of my career being actively involved in response in countries like Afghanistan, North Korea, Zimbabwe, wherever. And then suddenly here I am starting this organization that's supposed to, to help people like me make better decisions. And really what I came to discover was that probably I wasn't as good at what I was doing as I thought I was. Uh, 
And uh, very often, once we we are working under extreme conditions in the, in in the human stem sector, we we don't often know what the problem is. We it changes very frequently, and you have to do something really quickly. It's a, it's a very very difficult decision making situation to be in. And and so working 100% on on figuring out how to quickly appreciate what's happening and provide a good evidence base for decision making really made me, I think, question my previous uh, work in in some ways. I don't think I did well enough. I don't think we as a as, as an industry, if you want, did well enough. And and so what I strive to do today, or what ACAP strives to do today, is to to help provide a second opinion, if you want, uh, an, an operationally independent point of view, to make sure that we we make the right decisions once we try to to help people who are falling through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, first, I want to acknowledge what you said about why well, wasn't maybe doing a good job, right? It's amazing when we go through our careers and we accumulate more experience and knowledge, we can see things differently. We have a different mm-hmm. lens, and so we can maybe see those areas that maybe we we miss the mark on because we have different eyes, more informed eyes. Yeah, I mean, I think if you have figured out the world at the age of 23, it's going to be a pretty boring world. <laughs> Isn't that right? I mean, yes. <laughs> Give it up. Right. Um, exactly. Right. And so I love the idea that once we, we the older we get, the more we realize we just don't know. Yeah. Or you... You, 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 I think if you are a thinking human being, you challenge yourself more and more. Mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and I think hopefully you, you gain some insight, but you also gain some humility, I think. I would hope. Yes, yes, I would hope so too. Yes. Um, okay, so at this point, I want to dive deeper into this whole COVID thing. Um, you started to talk about it before, but then I heard your interview with uh, on, on your on your podcast, True Humanitarian. Great name for a podcast by the name True Humanitarian. You were on with Sarah Spencer, and uh, on the episode called Arms Race for Data, and you said in that episode that you think the secondary effects of COVID will make the first ones look minor, and you're worried we won't manage to adapt to the the fallout with business. What do you see? What it's, what what do those eyes see? Yeah. So so first, I mean, ju- just to be clear, the primary effects obviously is the people who get infected and uh, and and who, who become sick or even die from from the pandemic. The secondary effects are around loss of livelihood, uh, protection issues, all all these other derived effects we see. And I think we are only at the beginning of the, we're seeing the tip of the iceberg, if you want, in terms of the secondary effects. You can just take three recent news stories if you look at what's happening in in um, in Brazil, in South Africa, and in Thailand. You know, you, you have demonstrations in, in, in all of those countries. You have the leaders of these countries being challenged because of the way they've handled the pandemic. You've had the worst violence in South Africa since apartheid. Uh, you know, it, 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 these are just examples. You could probably pick out 15, 20, 30 countries that are being severely destabilized because of this. If you then go to the refugee camps, or if you look at uh, a, a, a motorcycle taxist in Kampala, Uganda, uh, who makes his money during the day and then he spends it on food at night and he's then locked down for three weeks, and you see the impact that this crisis is having. And then you have the rest of us 
uh, thinking about whether we should get a vaccine or not and, and trying to get a pet for our kids because they're bored sitting at home. I mean, it is a highly discriminatory. <laughs> this pandemic just discriminates and, and it, uh, it is reshaping humanitarian outcomes across the world. And I think you are going to see this cascading effects over the coming years. I think we're only seeing the beginning now. Uh, we are very resilient. We, you and I are lucky. We live in very resilient societies with a lot of resources to to bail out companies, to send checks to individuals. That's not the case in Nicaragua, right? And, and so, I think you will see. Uh, it's very corrosive, and I don't think we can predict. Actually, the thing I try to do these days is to just not make up my mind, mm. but to really just acknowledge how much we don't know and, and what levels of ambiguity we're dealing with, and then to keep my eyes wide open. I don't know if that made sense. That was a bit rambling, but, you know, I read this statistic about uh, uh, mascara and or eye makeup and, and, and lipstick. Did yeah. you see this? Right? Yeah. yeah, I think I heard you talking about it. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> so lipstick drops because we're all wearing masks and, and, and the eyes you, you put makeup on because you need to look good on Zoom. Now, that's one small example that I had never thought about before I heard it. And I think that there are 50 examples like that of much more magnitude that we haven't thought about, of changed behavior that's going to create effects that will hurt the most vulnerable people we have in this world. So I think COVID-19 is reshaping humanitarian outcomes as we speak, and I don't think we've understood yet how that is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. OK, so then let's go back to your core, which, of course, is, is, is data. So. Um, you also talk about the challenge of how to factor in the voice of the, the local community to help humanitarian responses. And so how can technology and analytics help there? Yeah. So I think I think we all in the humanitarian sector have this dream of having an, a humanitarian Airbnb that fixes the shelter needs of people on, on the move, that we can find a way of somehow leveraging the fantastic uh, power of technology. And actually, this is, you, you mentioned Paul Skinner earlier, this is one of Paul's ideas. He, he talks about United Beyond Nations, turning every person into a humanitarian and finding a way of creating a platform where we can collaborate. So you, in a sense, create a marketplace where some people want to to give and other people have needs. And then and, and that's, that's a great idea. It is a great we idea. Just, yeah, it, it's fantastic. And we are hunting for that, but we haven't cracked it yet. We haven't, we haven't found a way of really doing that. And I think, I, think, I think it'll happen at some stage, but the problem we have is, is again, back to messes, right? That, that the situations we work in are just <laughs> very messy. And, and um, when societies fall apart, it can be really hard to then get these solutions to work. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that you and Sarah Spencer were talking about, if, I, if memory serves me, with regard to using technology, especially to incorporate the local community, was something along voice recognition. Do I have that right? Is that part of what you were talking about? <clears throat> 
So Sarah and I spoke a lot about some of the dangers that are around uh, AI and uh, and how, I mean, we are, humanitarians are very paranoid people. Like mm. we, 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 we think a lot about how, how things can go wrong because we work in situations where they do go wrong and, and where the most vulnerable people are are hit the hardest. And so if you have a population that, for example, has fled their country and you apply AI or machine learning and you're able to identify individuals, for example, through voice recognition or other things, so you do any sort of biometric identification at the individual level, if that data is handled, handed over, for example, to the state that these people have fled from, that's an incredibly powerful tool in some real bad actors' hands. And so it's it's a double-edged sword, right? We can all see the potential. We can see how fantastic effective it is and, and how we could scale responses in ways we've never been able to. And at the same time, we are also really scared of the concentration of power and the level of control that this gives to people who may not have the best intentions. Mm -hmm. I like that you're having, that you're, afraid of that. I appreciate that that fear. I think that's extremely healthy. And I certainly would want somebody who's looking through data and trying to help to have that kind of a lens. So I versus being, you know, willy nilly about the whole thing. So I, I certainly appreciate that. And having lived in, in Spain and Brazil myself and gone through all over South America and, and seen a lot of these different um, populations that are really, really um, very vulnerable, very exposed. I, I really appreciate that. So and, and to that end, I think there's something else on the other side of that that I want to cover next that I, I think is really important and perhaps and probably connected. And, and that is what I have discerned is a very strong value for you around non-hierarchy. Yeah. yeah. And and so first I want to know, you know, why that is. And I want to talk a little bit more <laughs> about that. So where 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 it seems like it almost like it gives you like, the, to use my word before, the willies. That word alone just seems to, to bother you. Hierarchy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think. Uh, no, I, I'm. Pro I'm obviously probably quite an anti-authoritarian in many ways, and and I think uh, I have. A, I have a very deep-rooted skepticism towards uh, the exercise of power. I think it has to be done in an ethical way, and probably the thing that scares me the most is for myself to abuse power. And so when I became a manager and, and began to move off to the hierarchy, then the thing I asked myself was, how, how do you avoid this having power changing you? How, how do you avoid that you become a different person? And, and, and how do you do the right thing with this power you've been given? And for me, a lot of that answer is around seeing your success through the agency of others in the in the sense that you're there to enable others to to be the best they can be in the position they're in rather than you uh, pushing through your small ideas hmm. um so when i was when i was living in, in brazil i i was doing my master's degree at the time and so i studied the i was very interested in, in the environment and and um what was happening there. So I studied the the social, economic, and political contributions of the deforestation of the, of the Amazon. And talk about power, right? So I really understand mm. what you mean. That it's, it's really something to, to, to behold. And there's a couple other things I want to talk with you about that when we get a little further into the conversation. But 
further, though, let's just, while we're on this notion of non-hierarchy, one of the things that you said that I think would be great for our listeners to hear about is, uh, I know that Frederick Lelou was a great influence for you and that you appreciate uh, his thinking around organization. So why him? Why, why his thoughts? Yeah, I, I, when I, he has written a great book called Reinventing Organizations. That has been, I, I found that really inspiring. What I liked about it is that he portrays a vision of a company that is, um, it's not that it's non-hierarchical, but it's like the hierarchies vary, right? So it's whoever is best suited to, to solve a certain problem solves it. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not always, it doesn't always end up on the same desk. And the type of organization describes is very evolving and sensing its environment sort of changing with the environment. And and not only do I think that that's, that's a great way of working because it, it gives great agency and freedom to individuals to, to bring all of themselves into work, it also is probably more effective than sort of a more new public management approach to things, I think. And so it really speaks to me. Uh, it's also very difficult to implement, but it, it, it really speaks to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to create an organization where we, we our, for example, the first value of ACAPS, we have, we have our values. So our first value is we choose to create uh, ACAPS as an enabling uh, plat- platform. No, we, yeah, we trust each other to, to create an enabling pla- platform for excellence and professional growth, right? So it's a platform where we trust each other, we want to excel and we want to grow professionally, right? That, that for me is the key, that, that if we can create a work environment like that, then I think we get the best out of people. And for an organization as ACAPS, where 80% of our cost structure is, is, is salaries, if people are not happy, you're not getting your money worth. Right. Well, now bringing that over, it's not this idea of, of hierarchy into, into humanitarian efforts. One of the things that you and Sarah Spencer talked about in the Race for Arms uh, episode is how humanitarian efforts are run and funded through a hierarchical way. Help us understand what that means. The fundamental problem we have is that, and I should say when I use this whole market language, I, I don't think that you can reduce the humanitarian effort to, to a market issue. It, uh, people have rights uh, and, and, and I think that changes things. but. But if you think of it, who is the customer actually in a humanitarian crisis? Is, is, is it the person affected by the earthquake or the donor who signs the check? Right? So there's a disconnect between what we could call the upward accountability towards the persons who, who fund the taxpayers ultimately, in, in primarily in the Western world, who, who foots the bill, and the people uh, who receive the assistance. And, and a lot of it is around uh, are we really responsive enough to the wants and needs of the people affected by crisis, or are we driven by other agendas? That that that's the that's what it boils down to. Okay, I, that makes a lot of sense. And one thing that you did also say that I thought was quite fascinating with regard to data is that, and you correct me if I say anything wrong here, but what I what I remember you saying was that you have plenty of data from from the donors. You know exactly who those people are and how you find them and how you can target them and talk to them. Uh, but it, it, with regard to operation, operate, knowing data operationally, that's a whole other whole other beast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's 
we, we are dealing with such levels of ambiguity and uncertainty that, that often we have to operate in very murky situations. And I don't, for me, that's not, it's not that we are not professionals. I, I think some of the most professional people I know work in the humanitarian sector, some of the most driven people I know. But we just work in really, really difficult situations where we often don't actually understand fully the crisis or the, the problem we're dealing with. Whereas dealing with a government's financial regulations and, and their strategic framework, that's very well-lit territory. Mm -hmm. Got it. Let's grab our last break here. Um, we've been on the air with Lars Peter Niesen, director of ACAPS, an organization he co-founded in 2009 that is directed to see the crisis and change the outcome. We've been talking more about the work that he does in humanitarian uh, um, angles across the world. After the break, we're gonna hear more about um, the ethics of data collection. Stay with us, we'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. I mentioned after the first break about the Grab Your Gusto Wellbeing webcast learning series. The content of that program is adapted from part one of my recently published book called Purpose Ignited, How Inspiring Leaders Ignite Passion and Elevate Cause, which is now on Amazon. I wrote that book to awaken leaders to their passion and purpose and help transform them into inspirational leaders who would enliven the workplace and elevate the contribution of business to all stakeholders. That's why it's for. If you're just joining us, my guest is Lars Peter Niesen. He is the director of ACAPS, and he also serves as the interim director of H2H Network, which comprises 60 highly innovative human humanitarian agencies creating an enabling environment for humanitarian action through service delivery. He joins today from Denmark. Normally his home is Gen Geneva, Switzerland. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. <clears throat> so for this next part here, Lars Peter, I wanted to get into you know, the ethics piece of what, what you what you work with. And and so part of what you say, and I heard you say this in one of your episodes as well, is that actions get taken by whether or not they land on the front page of a paper, not whether they actually help people in need. Yeah. I think there is what we could call a perverse incentive structure in many ways in, in, in terms of of how we I like I like the language of how we shape the humanitarian narrative, how we we decide what the problem is. And and I think when I say this, I always I wanna I wanna clarify that I don't think that the suffering that, that people are going through is a story. I think it's very real for them. But I think the way we deal with it is a story. The way we analyze it and think about it is a story and often that story is not accurate. Are not driven, not driven by evidence or even by the the wants and needs of of, of the people uh, in need. 
I think it's really important that this gets talked about, right? So that people are aware of this. And one of the things, of course, that I want to be able to help listeners and viewers is to is to expand their sources of news and where they get information. So, so important, rather than relying on just one singular or even two for that matter. And then questioning it, where did this, this information come from? So, so important. So then we can then look at this next question, which you already talked about before, and that's the ethics of data collection. And you said before in one of the episodes that I thought was so interesting, you said there's a deep fear that we humanitarian organizations will gather data from local populations and their government will use it against them. And thus we actually accidentally do them harm. I can't imagine a worse feeling, Hmm. a worse outcome. Yeah, that is sort of the worst nightmare in it. and I mean, we, 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 we see this, we see in, in many different ways, humanitarian aid being politicized, being, being used in, in different ways. There are examples of some countries of, of governments using food distributions to decide where to bomb because they know people come where the food is, for example. I mean, it, we, we just have to recognize that we, even though we're not, we're not political in what we do, we are part of a political game in the context we work in. Mm-hmm. And the scary thing about uh, information technology, as we see it today, is that it just scales these things to a frightening level, right? And so, so how do you, how do you how do you ethically go about this? How do you ethically go about using, you know, information technology f- for these things? And I think I think one of the things we have to talk about is what don't we want to know? Mm. Right. Once, if you choose to collect data, especially, and I think we are primarily, if not exclusively, here, talking about individual personal data. Right. It, it's it's really once you get down to this person in this refugee camp, in this tent, with this family, with this background. Once you begin to identify individuals, that's when it becomes really dangerous. I think the more contextual stuff. I think that's out there anyways. I don't, I don't think we're doing any harm there. But if you actually have very granular individual level data and that gets into the wrong hands, I think that is really dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we need to think about what we don't want to know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Well, and to that end, then you go and talk about the more sophisticated means of data collection you use, the more vulnerable you become to just looking at the data and not making sense of it. <clears throat> that's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And I think it's obvious. I mean. You know, we we um, when I started out, I would send a fax home to my parents every two weeks. Maybe a fax. Okay, we yeah. know what, what era that was. Okay, <laughs> last millennium, right? And and then we had these big uh, we had these big sat phones we would drag around, which which would weigh it would be the size of a suitcase. And today, I mean, the level of connectedness is scary. Look at what we're doing right now, right? I mean. And and so it it has just accelerated in 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 a way that creates vulnerabilities. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so then we go back to what you started to say before. I picked this up on one of your other episodes. You said, "Know what you need to know. Who is your decision maker, and what we what will he do with the data? What's the objectives of the data? So important." Uh. And it's so obvious, right? It, it's you, you. You mentioned a couple of times ACAP's tagline: "See the crisis, change the outcome." And and what I always try to tell people, and actually this comes back to to purpose, I think, is if if you write a clever 120-page report and nobody has time to read it, you're not changing the outcome. 
I doubt whether you're even seeing the crisis. If what people need is a is a map, and and this I I once we worked we did some work on Syria um, around eight, eight years ago, and I traveled around uh, the region and and we had just published a regional report, a quarterly regional report. I think it was 140 pages actually. And I had it there and I said, uh, have you seen this? They said, oh, fantastic piece of work, great piece of work. I said, yeah, have you read it? Nobody had, but they intended to, but they hadn't. And at the same time, we had we had done just a one page map with some border crossings and some catchment. It was, it was a really clever piece of work and they all had that. And they said, I remember one guy saying, I bring this to all the meetings and I put it on the table. So when people talk, right? And so, if you if you don't think about who your decision maker is or the situation he or she is in, you end up writing for yourself and not for that person, and then you're not changing the outcome. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and then say more about this. You have a, you're very clever with how you use words and and, you, and put together phrases. You say makes sense, not data. What do you mean by that? It's back to what we just talked about, right? So, so the first rule is know who your decision. What are you trying to achieve here? What's your purpose? Who's your decision maker? What does he or she need to know? Secondly, make sense. If you're not data, no, don't just collect data. We are so, we're so data. We're so in love with data these days, and we're so spoiled with data. But we work in situations that are fairly poorly lit. Right? There's not a lot of data often. And so if you collect data, that's there's a big cost associated with that. You, you spend a lot of time on that. Wouldn't it be better to, to, to maybe analyze instead of running around with a clipboard in the field? Okay, got right. it, absolutely. And, yeah, we once did an exercise where we, we spent, I don't, I don't even want to think about how much money it cost, but it took us three, four weeks and we had more than 100 people involved in this. And we, spent, we, we used maybe 20% of the data we collected in the final report. So 80% of all those efforts was just wasted. Yeah, yeah. Right? Probably. And so makes sense, not data. It's not a data collection exercise. It's a sense-making exercise to understand crisis. Okay. And then we got to bring, bring this point home. This is, gonna, this is probably going to really bother some people that really like cleanliness. But you said, don't be precisely wrong. Be approximately right. Yeah. And, and that, as you say, that, that ties back to the messes. It's also, for me, linked to complexity. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you work in, in, in situations where the problem you're dealing with is pr- predominantly complex, we know that simple rules for complex settings is, is one way of doing things, and that if you develop an overly granular uh, picture, you have to update that. So if you collect a 1,000 data points, you have to collect a 1,000 data points to update. Now, if the situation changes every six hours, you don't have time to do that. And so what's happening is it takes you a couple of days to collect a thousand data points and then you have a beautiful picture. It's just precisely wrong because that's no longer what the world looks like. Mm-hmm. So you have to do a good enough approach. You you have to you have to find that sweet spot where you are in tune with how rapidly things are changing and evolving and and then have the courage to put out what is good enough. You 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 have to put your you have to put your best guess out there and then hope that that's good enough. Mm-hmm. So great way to finish because we started with complexity and vastness and that's a great way to finish. So here we are at the end of the show, Lars Peter. You know the show is listened to by, Peter all, by, by people all over the world and what we're up to is trying to help create organizations where people actually want to come to work, give their best, and we do business that betters the world. What would you like to leave us with? 
So I think um, I think as a manager, as a leader of of, of an organization, I think uh, I think it's about integrity and and, and authenticity. I, I know that's a, a very abused word, but zero BS, if you want. Mm-hmm. You may be you may be wrong as a leader. You may, but you have to believe what you tell the organization, the, your, your staff. They, and then people pick this up in two seconds flat. If you if you have, if you really believe what you're doing, you may be wrong. They'll forgive you for that, especially yeah. if you afterwards say, "Hey, this was not right. I actually messed up here." And so for me, it's two things. It's a, it's be as authentic as you can, bring as much as you can of yourself into a situation. And, and then secondly, fail forward and show people that you're failing and that you're moving forward. Mm, also, the way we began this conversation. Lars Peter, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your beautiful heart and mind with, with us and helping us hopefully create a better world and serve it better. So thank you so much for being a guest. Thanks for having me on, Elise. Uh, it, was, it was great. I hope I made sense in spite of the very late hour. I, I feel my cognitive uh, abilities deteriorating very quickly. So I well, think it's that's... time for me to, to hit the second. Yeah, I would say so. If these are failed cognitive abilities, the rest of us are doomed. So uh, listeners, viewers, if you want to learn more about Lars Peter Neeson and the work he does, you can start by visiting acaps.org. That's A-C-A-P-S dot org. And thanks again to our partnering sponsor, WorkProud, which helps companies build a platform where your workforce receives meaningful feedback. And thanks for their work from people across your company. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch it via recorded podcast. We were on the air with Kenne Ilio Yossi talking about his latest book, Put Your Purpose to Work, How to Find Fulfillment in Your 9 to 5, and the work he does as a sweet spot coach. Next week, we'll be on the air with Swati Thiagajaran, who is the author of Born Wild and the associate producer of the smash documentary, My Octopus Teacher, talking about the profound beauty and wholeness connecting with nature affords our health, fulfillment, and spiritual journey. See you there. Remember that work is at least a third of our life, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously, leadership inspires impassioned performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose. Let's work on purpose.